Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My guest today is Leslie Hazelton, an award-winning British-American writer whose work focuses on the intersection of politics, religion, and history, especially in the Middle East. She reported from Israel for Time magazine, has written on the Middle East for numerous publications, including the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Harper's, The Nation, and The New Republic. She's the author of several books, including Jerusalem, Jerusalem, A Memoir of War and Peace, Passion and Politics, Mary, A Flesh and Blood Biography, Jezebel, The Untold Story of the Bible, Harlot Queen, after the prophet, the epic story of the Shia Sunni split. Her latest book and the subject of today's conversation is The First Muslim, the Story of Muhammad. Uh, welcome, Leslie, to Religion for Life. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I love this book. I, I consumed it. I, I really didn't know Muhammad's story. I had pieces of it. Uh, the Quran was disconnected for me and opaque. Uh, but you found a human being, and thus you put the Quran in context for me. Uh, tell us about the literature about Muhammad. What are the sources for his life, and, and what's unique about your book in relation to other lives of Muhammad? Well, John, you kind of put it perfectly already. What I wanted was to get a real sense of the man himself, to be able to see him in full, to accord him the integrity of reality. And what happened was that the more I read about him, and I read several, I'd read several biographies as background research for the previous book, After the Prophet, which begins with his death. Um, the more I read about him, the, the, I knew a lot about him, I knew what, when, and so on, but none of the how and the why and what was really going on. It was almost as though... I was looking through a telescope the wrong way round. You know what happens then, so everything becomes smaller instead of larger. And I found this very, very frustrating. Um, and I just, it, it, it seemed to me amazing that, you know, here's, here's a man who cast this huge profile in history, who radically changed his world and is still changing ours. And, you know, the answer to how come so many of us can know so little about him is basically that what's been written about him, and there have been millions, if not billions, of words written about him, is either uh, Muslim devotional literature, and this, of course, is not a devotional uh, biography, but a, a, a historical one, and, um, or is written uh, by non-Muslim Westerners with a certain, um, how to put this, a certain sense of trepidation, perhaps, a kind of tiptoeing through the tulips, Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, a kind of dutiful aspect to it. And, uh, you know, sort of like, okay, here's another, you know, it, 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 the truth is you tend to sort of fall asleep with those books on your chest. Right. And um, I wanted to do justice to this absolutely remarkable life, whether you, um, you know, and basically for non-Muslims, you know, to, to get a real sense of the place, the time, and the man, you know, why this man in this time and this place, and how did he do what he did? You mentioned uh, the Jesus Seminar favorably, and I appreciate that as I'm an associate member. Uh, the Jesus Seminar, of course, a gathering of scholars searching for the historical Jesus. And, and you wrote uh, in your book, quote, by looking at him, that is Jesus, in the full context of his time, the seminar made him not less but more relevant to our own. So in a sense, your search is for the historical Muhammad to make him relevant in our time. 
Exactly, and what I found was that the um, the reality is actually far more remarkable than any number of legends. I mean, of course, you know, sort of Muslim tradition is full of stories about Muhammad, as is Christian tradition about Jesus. But, you know, when you take it historically and you realize that this was a real man in a real time in a real place, it becomes all the more remarkable. I have great respect for reality. I think what's achieved in reality outshines legend any time. You know, the Jesus Seminar uh, received a great deal of heat from the gatekeepers of Christianity. Uh, has your book challenged pious sensibilities in Islam? Uh, by more conservative Muslims, yes, starting with the title, because uh, uh, Muslim tradition uh, maintains that either Adam or Abraham was the first Muslim and so on, to which my reply is that actually uh, Muhammad is told three times in the Quran itself, which is, of course, entirely in the voice of God speaking to Muhammad, uh, Muhammad is told three times in the Quran to call himself the first Muslim. So, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there are many places in the book where it goes counter to tradition. And, you know, this, is, this has, uh, of course, you know, sort of, uh, uh, conservative Muslims have objected to this, but basically it's been on the level of uh, we respectfully disagree. And it's led to some very, very interesting conversations. Uh, Muhammad uh, was an orphan, um, and his formative years were outside his community. And when he returned, uh, he never fit in. You write, and he could see from the so he could see from the vantage point of an outsider. Tell us a little bit about his early experience, how that shaped his later work. Uh, but yes, that marginalized eye. He was born into the ruling tribe of Mecca, but very, very much on its margins. Uh, his father. Uh, his father died without even knowing that he'd sired a son. Um, and he died on the road traveling. And so Muhammad never knew his father. Uh, he was farmed out to Bedouin for fostering for the first five years of his life. The usual period of time was two. But, and so you have to ask, okay, why five years? And basically there was nothing for him to come back to. His mother had not remarried, which is extremely unusual for the time, and a sign that something was very, very wrong here in Mecca. When he finally did come back, his mother died just one year later, and he, he watched her die. Um, and here, so here was a child who was way on the margins of his own society, imbued with the values of Bedouin life, which is amazingly egalitarian, right? So the, a tribe is only as strong as its weakest member. And he's come back to Mecca, which at that time in the seventh century was kind of like um, an Arabian equivalent of, all, of a Wall Street bull market. It was, a, it, 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 it was a city that was a major, it was profiting majorly off both uh, uh, trade and piety. A profit and piety, you could say, were its twin its twin stars, right? It was a major uh, uh, pilgrimage center, but it was also um, a central uh, point on the trading center, which sent huge camel caravans, uh, basically organized like cartels, north and south each year. And Muhammad was put to work uh, basically as a camel boy on these caravans, mm -hmm. and slowly, slowly and painfully worked his way up to become a trader's agent. Um, but this means that he had, as you say, the outsider's eye, which is an incredibly productive eye. You see things clearly as they are. You know, when you're on the inside, 
You accept the status quo. You accept the corruption and the greed and so on because it's to your advantage to do so. You know, it doesn't occur to you that change is needed and you will resist change. Um, whereas he could see very well what was happening and what was wrong and the abandonment of the most basic values of social and economic justice. And so early on, this was a man who, who, who or, you know, even as a boy, he could sense what was wrong and sense the need for change. Uh, because what happened to him when he was 40, when he received the first revelation of the Quran on a mountain just outside Mecca, you know, you have to ask, okay, why? Why him? It didn't just happen out of the blue. He was ready to receive it. He was ready to lead, basically, a revolution. Let's talk about that. My guest is uh, Leslie Hazelton. Uh, she's the author of The First Muslim, uh, the story of Muhammad, and she's speaking with me uh, by phone from Seattle. Uh, my favorite sentence in your book is this one, uh, the essence of religious experience is at heart poetic. And this is uh, in, in relation to his experience on the mountain that we're just talking about. Now, you are a psychologist. We're in the 21st century. What do we make of people who claim that a supernatural being speaks to them? Uh, what happened to Muhammad on the mountain, and, and how much can you say about that experience of revelation? Well, obviously, you know, we're talking about the core mystical moment of Islam, and therefore it defies empirical analysis. And yet, you know, this is a question that wouldn't let go of me. So, you know, mm -hmm. try and picture me, if you can, five years ago, pacing the floor of my houseboat here in misty Seattle, uh, uh -huh. with the, haunted by this question of what actually happened one desert night half the world and nearly half of history away, you know, what happened that night of the first revelation. Um, and this was something, this is definitely the most speculative uh, part of the book, where I can only ask questions. Obviously, there are no answers, but I can explore uh, mystical experience. Um, it's, I mean, obviously, if you're a rationalist, <laughs> you you know, will not accept that, that this huge boundary was broken and that, you know, that, that, that God spoke to Muhammad, this boundary between the human and the divine. But, um, and I, like all of us, I like to think of myself as rational. So what, what, what really struck me when I read that early account, you know, the earliest account from the earliest Islamic biographers from the 8th and 9th centuries, was Muhammad's reaction because, he, you know, he didn't come down shouting out hallelujah and bless the Lord and full of ecstasy and joy and surrounded by, you know, choirs of angels and so on. I mean, this, you know, the, this usual image of revelation was not there at all. He was terrified. Hmm. He came down in total fear, convinced at first that he'd lost his mind to the extent that his first impulse, and conservative Muslims hate my saying this, but it's there in the earliest Islamic biographies. His first impulse was to... Um, go on higher up the mountain and throw himself off, leap to his death in order to escape this terror of, of, of what he'd experienced. Because, you know, it was, who was he? He was just, you know, he thought of himself as a regular man, as an outsider, as somebody powerless. And here suddenly is this voice telling him, I'm just going to lead this huge movement. So uh, what struck me about this was how very human this reaction was. Mm. How unexpected in, in, you know, as a, a, you know, as part of a legend, it would be totally unexpected. But as part of a real story of a human being, it's, yeah, it's the only reaction that makes sense. It's the only human reaction. And this sort of allowed me a way in to begin to see Muhammad as a human being, as 
which he most definitely was. Um, and, it's, um, and it gave me some sort of sense of sympathy for him, too, or empathy, let's say. It, it, empathy, which is trying to understand somebody else's experience, even as you know how you are outside but trying to get inside at the same time. So it's a kind of mirroring of that outside-inside aspect of his own life. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Leslie Hazelton, author of The First Muslim, The Story of Muhammad. And you use the phrase, uh, the Quranic voice, throughout your book to talk about the revelations that Muhammad uh, would recite. Now, obviously, uh, many are woodenly specific to his own experience. At one point, uh, uh, you write about one of his wives, Aisha, in a moment of impertinence, I suppose, implying that it's convenient that a revelation works in his favor. Uh, Do you make a distinction um, between Muhammad's voice and the Quranic voice? It's very hard to, you know, okay, we have various, many sources of information. In fact, you know, sort of, uh, people say there's no, you know, documentation about Muhammad's life. On the contrary, there's, uh, in a sense, almost too much documentation. Mm. The words of the Quran are the words that we can be most sure that he actually spoke. Okay. Uh, and then there were all the hadith, the reports of his life and of his sayings and so on, most of which came later. What I've relied on very heavily is the earliest biography of Sirah, Ibn Ishaq, uh, and the earliest uh, uh, surviving history of early Islam, which was by Ibn uh, uh, al-Tabari. And when I read these guys, it sort of broke through all the you know, modern biographies that I've written because they were so alive. They were so full of juice, so full of vitality. You could actually hear people talking. You know, and I lived for a long time in the Middle East. I know how people talk. I worked with the Bedouin. I know how Bedouin talk and so on. And it was just, for me, a joy to make this. It was like reconnecting with this sort of grapevine of information and, 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 and knowledge and so on. Uh, but at the same time, I could see why all the uh, contemporary biographies or the modern ones were necessary because the old ones, these 8th and ninth century ones, are told in a way uh, that I love in a very, very Middle Eastern way, which is, uh, I think the best, best word is probably an anachronism, which is Byzantine. They sort of start in one place and they go backwards, we forwards. Make, it's a very ornate way of telling a story which defies... Um, straight chronological narrative. Uh, it does, the chronology does make sense as you go along, but you need a lot of uh, patience and focus to, to, to follow the thread of it. It's rather, in fact, you know, the best word I can come up with for it is postmodern, the style of it. Hmm. And I know that postmodern stuff drives most Westerners crazy, and so does this. Uh, so you need a sort of uh, a Middle East background, I guess, to, to really appreciate it. But there it was. There was the juice. There were real people speaking, real details, um, even about what Muhammad looked like. I mean, for the, for the most part, you know, you get these sort of generalities because, you know, you're not supposed to, to, to obviously uh, show any image of Muhammad himself in, in uh, Muslim tradition. And yet in these early biographies, there's bits and pieces come out and so on. You can piece it together. You know, he had a... Uh, a ruddy complexion. He was sort of slightly barrel-chested. He would always be sort of leaning forward as though he were rushing towards something and so on. When he turned to speak to you, he would turn his whole body instead of just his head. And you, you and oh, and of course he had this wonderful 
uh, Middle Eastern nose, a sort of long hawk nose, which is a sign of nobility in the Middle East. And you begin to put all these things together and you begin to be, actually be able to not just feel him, but to see him. And this to me was extraordinarily exciting. And, and of course, as you read, uh, what, what I was impressed as I was reading your book is, is his, reading the story of his life, and then, and then you go and say, here's the Quranic uh, voice also speaking to that aspect of it. So it goes, uh, reading his life, you almost can't really read the Quran without understanding his own life uh, informing uh, definitely it. Definitely not, definitely not. The Quran, <laughs> uh, the Quran is a very, very difficult book to read unless you have a really good background in the history uh, or the current events of the time. But it's not a book you can curl up with, you know, uh, on a Sunday afternoon with a bowl of popcorn by your side and just read. It's not a book in the usual sense that way. But what I do advise uh, people who come to it new to do is perhaps to start from the back as though it were in Arabic, right? As though you're reading it from right to left instead uh -huh. of from left to right. Because towards the back are the shorter and earlier uh, sections, sections that were revealed earlier. And those are the more mystical sections. There you will find the more of the, the, the mystical basis of the Quran, the mystical revelations. And that, I think, is a much better way in, because the longer chapters at the beginning are dense with um, historical uh, reference, except it's never explained. You know, it's, it's, it's out of context for a Westerner without the historical background, uh, which to me makes perfect sense, because, you know, if it is God talking, why should God fill in the context for you? <laughs> right, right. So, the, yeah, those early uh, revelations from... from uh uh, Mecca, the more beautiful, poetic, uh, mystical ones, and then as he uh, moves to Medina, he has to kind of organize this whole movement, and the revelations become more pragmatic. Uh, and as as I was reading this, I was thinking that if Jesus lived longer, he would have had to have said more than just love your enemies and to tell parables. He'd have had to be political and form committees and do the hard work of organizing and institutionalizing. And, and it's one thing to die young and become divine, but it's quite another to live your life into your 60s and have to work it out. And that's uh, what Muhammad did. And I was impressed uh, with how he pulled this all together. Uh, what impressed you most about his leadership? I said, that's absolutely fascinating what you just said, because it's absolutely true. I mean, Jesus' Jesus's active ministry was really only for two years mm -hmm. until he was uh, crucified. Whereas Muhammad, uh, the revelations came in spades over a period of 23 years, because he died at age 63. And in that time, as you say, first of all, he was exiled from Mecca because uh, his message was so radical, it was a threat to the powers that be. Uh, there was a concerted attempt to assassinate him. He was basically forced out of Mecca or exiled and um, started this whole new, extraordinarily idealistic community in Medina, 200 miles to the north, um, which, as you say, demanded that as the leader of this new community, both the spiritual and the political leader, that he address questions of, you know, how do we live together? How do we organize? How do we organize socially and politically and so on? It became a political movement as well. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> well, I was wondering what impressed you most about how he pulled that together. I mean, he was quite intuitive uh, as, a, as a leader. Yeah, yeah. What impressed me most was um, the 
first of all, the, the, the extraordinary emphasis on social and economic justice. This really, really strong, at the start, this extraordinarily strong protest against um, uh, the rich profiting. Basically, it was a kind of almost, you know, a, a movement of the 99% mm-hmm. against the 1%, but very, very strongly turned. And it included an uh, outrage at the preference for sons over daughters, at the way that, uh, uh, women were marginalized and so on. So that Muhammad's early followers, in fact, were very, very similar to the early followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Women, slaves, freed slaves, second, third, and fourth sons who would not inherit and so on, the people that the elite called nobodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so very much this was a movement of the people. Uh, and uh, so this struck me very much, and it's very rarely in the West emphasized about Islam, how the roots of, of Islam are in this protest against corruption uh, and the corruption of power. In fact, I think when you look at all three of the great monotheisms, you will find this. I mean, Judaism grew out of, if you read the, the uh, uh, kings and so on in, in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel and Kings, you will find that Judaism grew out of the protest against uh, corrupt kings, the arrogance and corruption of kings. If you read the, the, the New Testament, it grew out of the uh, 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 protest against the arrogance and corruption of occupation, Roman occupation, and of mm-hmm. those who collaborate with the occupation. And the same way with the, in the Quran, it's protest against the arrogance and the corruption of an oligarchy, a small ruling elite who are profiting to the, to the detriment of everybody else. Um, so I think they begin as movements of extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary idealism. Uh, the problem, of course, is, is, is maintaining that idealism after the death of the founding figure and uh, uh, through the, basically what then becomes the institutionalization of the new religion. But that's another story. Yeah, and part of uh, the pragmatism of Muhammad is that there is violence in this history. Uh, it reminds me, uh, I was thinking immediately of the stories of Abraham that we often forget, in which he's kind of the warrior, you know, going after the various tribes. Um, and um, well, to tell us, you know, and of course it's often simplistic, uh, Islam, a religion of peace, a religion of war, Muhammad, a peaceful person, a warful person, it's far more complex than that. Far more complex. I don't think it makes any sense to think of any religion as a religion of peace or a religion of war which might be why so right. many Westerners are currently having trouble with the idea of Buddhist thugs, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> beating up and killing Muslims. Um, it sort of doesn't sound Buddhist, but it's, 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 it's you know, this, this is religion manipulated for political gain, or religious impulse manipulated for religion, for political gain. Um, Muhammad's attitude towards the use of violence is very, very interesting. For the first 12 years while he was still in Mecca, he took a downright Gandhian stance. I mean, he was Gandhi, you know, sort of 14 centuries before Gandhi. Uh, there was continual verbal and physical harassment, both of himself and his followers, and he absolutely forbade any, any um, uh, reaction in kind. Um, it was truly passive resistance on a very, very high level. Once he becomes the political leader, though, of Medina, things change, and you can sense this you can see it in the Quran, too. You can sense this huge ambivalence about the use of violence. Yes, violence has to be used, right? Because part of it demands, you know, defense pacts, uh, uh, taking up arms in defense of each other and so on. Um, 
And yet, uh, at the same time, so many statements against any kind of violence whatsoever. You know, I mean, there's a very famous one. Uh, anyone who takes the life, uh, a life, takes the life of all humanity. Anyone who saves the life, saves the life of all humanity. And yes, that is from the Quran. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, continually he's being asked, okay, well, when can we use violence? When can we? And the, the Quran is very interesting in this way because it says, yes, you can you know, use violence, but only if this, and only if that, and only if they try and stop you getting to the Kaaba, the big shrine, and only if they attack you first, and only and only, and then it says, and even then, it says, you know, God is merciful, forgiveness is divine, and basically what it comes down to is better if you don't, uh, which is something that I wish, um, you know, there is this extremist minority, extremist fundamentalist minority, especially in the Middle East, something that I wish they actually paid attention to. In other words, uh, fundamentalists, and I'm far from the first to say this, uh, that uh, militant Islamic fundamentalists, as many, many imams uh, uh, pointed out, are actually uh, in total violation of Islam itself. And do, the last... Uh well, how he, and how he returns to Mecca, I don't want to give away your book, but I mean, I, I was so uh, moved, really, by how he took his time and how he thought that through about finally returning um, near the end and taking several attempts to make it there and even delaying for a time. Yeah, an extraordinary eight years there when he's in Medina uh, and sort of the exile, mm -hmm. focused, of course, on the place that you're exiled from, which is Mecca. Uh, and there were three battles within that time between Medina and Mecca. And, you know, they're, they're being glorified as great battles, but in fact they seem to be more sort of armed skirmishes. What struck me was how few people were killed in them, not how yeah. many, but how very, very few. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed to be more that the, the, the uh, you know, to avoid taking life rather than to, to take it. So when it came time, um, obviously Muhammad wanted come back to Mecca. Mecca was the, the, his center, his home, the home of the great shrine to Allah, God. Basically, you have a process of negotiation, which I find fascinating, slow negotiation with the head of Mecca, so that when he finally comes back to Mecca, and it's called the Fatah, which is a word that be familiar to many people, uh, which is usually translated as victory, but in fact means opening, mm -hmm. the opening of Mecca to Muhammad and to Islam, and it was a negotiated surrender. So you've got, he comes back with all his followers, the city opens to him, there are a total of 12 fatalities of those who decide, you know, despite mm -hmm. the surrender, to fight. Um, and it's, it's, it's very moving. Here yes. he comes home, but what the, the most striking thing is that after he goes to the Kaaba, closes himself in there and prays, it takes allegiance from, from uh, everybody who's there. He then goes back to Medina. <laughs> mm -hmm. He spent the last three years of his life in Medina. Hmm. Um, it was as though once his home had opened up to him fully, he didn't need to... It, it, uh, I'm not quite sure how to put this. It was like this was the point where Islam became more universal, where it was no longer connected only to Mecca, but it it began to spread much, much more widely. 
My guest, Leslie Hazelton, the author of a book I highly recommend, The First Muslim, The Story of Muhammad. Uh, thank you for being with me today for this book and for being with me on uh, Religion for Life. Thank you so much, John. It was a total delight. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about upcoming shows, uh, links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.